what American knows what two to three liters is? Because they don't learn the metric system here. As someone who did not grow up in this country, I could say. You know, I'm embarrassed to say that every time I have to sit and pull out my calculator and... Me too! (laughs) Welcome to Kidney Essentials. This is a podcast for medical students, residents, and all nephrocurious practitioners at the University of Colorado and beyond. We are here to make nephrology more accessible at one podcast at a time. So let's start with introductions, but before we do, we have a very special new host, not just a guest, but a host. Her name is Parisa, and she is here to tell you more about herself. Hi, everyone. I'm Parisa Mortaji. I'm a recent graduate from the Internal Medicine Residency Program at the University of Colorado, and I've stayed on as a hospitalist here, and I'm so excited to be a part of this podcast crew. I don't think I have a Twitter handle. I may have one, but I don't use it, and I do not have any conflicts of interest. I'm trying to get on the Twitter wagon, however. We're happy to have you as part of this podcast crew. As um, many of our listeners will realize, we've had a six-month period of time without a podcast, so we really needed some new blood to get us going again. Yeah, we think that it's going to be a great injection of new blood and energy and she is representative of the nephrocurious population out there. So here we go. So let's st- now go with our introductions. Sarah? Oh, hi, I'm Sarah Young. You guys know me. I am a nephrologist. I joke I'm a nephrospolist because I mostly do inpatient hospital nephrology. I also do a room uh, renal clinic. I uh, tweet at, at Kitty Critic. And I do not have any conflict of interest. And yeah, that's me. And I'm Sophia Ambrusso. I'm a clinician educator at the Denver VA and assistant professor on faculty at the University of Colorado. I tweet at Sophia Kidney and and I don't have any conflicts of interest. Okay, well, let's get started. Today, we're going to be discussing kidney stones and specifically calcium oxalate stones, given that these are the most common stones encountered in clinical practice. So we're going to be focusing on history, workup, and prevention. Parisa, this was your case, so why don't you start us off? All right, guys. So you are in nephrology clinic, and Mr. Stoney comes in. He's a 55-year-old male with a past medical history of obesity and type 2 diabetes. And he was referred to nephrology clinic by his primary care provider for nephrolithiasis. He was seen three weeks earlier after a recent ED visit for kidney stones. And thankfully, he was actually able to retrieve the stone, which was sent off for composition analysis that has now come back revealing calcium oxalate. The patient's main concern today is whether or not he needs to give up his love for dairy products. And he wants this addressed first thing. So, Sarah, can you just start us off by telling us a little bit about the epidemiology of nephrolithiasis and why we should care about it? So, we should care about nephrolithiasis because it is one of the few things in nephrology that causes pain. So, and it makes people really miserable. So, that's one reason uh, to care about it. But it's also very common and it occurs more commonly in men. About 20% of men and 9% of women will develop a kidney stone in their lifetime. And calcium oxalate are are some of the most common. 
All right. And why is it important for patients who have a stone to be evaluated? So more than half of individuals will go on to have another stone within 10 years. And as I said before, it's very painful. So we want to try to prevent that from happening to them. So with that knowledge, should all patients who ever have a stone be referred to nephrology and or urology? I think this is actually a little bit of of a debate. It does have a high risk of recurrence. So I think oftentimes it's probably not a bad idea. If one person has like a single stone, it's not necessarily the most important. But because it does have a high risk of recurrence, it's not uncommon that somebody who has one stone ends up having multiple stones or ends up having, you know, bilateral stones or a recurrence later on. So um, reasons that somebody should be evaluated by a specialist, either a urologist or a nephrologist, are, like I said, if they have more than one stone, if they have recurrent stones, if um, they have a stone that requires intervention, if they develop a stone early in their years, if they have some sort of family history of stones, or if they have anything like some ab- abnormal lab findings, for example, high calcium, high PTH, or a low, um, a low serum bicarb. Hey, hey, what you're getting ahead of yourself right there with all that. Either that, or we are working from completely different scripts. No, no, which no. Which is a possibility, I, I mean, <laughs> but we'll see. I, that... <laughs> all right, all right, all right. I'll slow down. <laughs> I'm, I'm getting ahead in the script. Um, but what I say stands, we want somebody to be referred to a nephrologist or urologist. So, Parisa, why don't you just go ahead and ask me the next question? We'll see if I can answer it. <laughs> All right. So, Sophie, you already touched on a lot of these in your great discussion. But what elements of the history do you want to focus on specifically for this patient, Mr. Stoney? Okay. So now that I'm meeting this patient because he's been referred to me as I am a nephrologist, things that I care about are the number of stones he's had. Is it bilateral? How frequently is he having episodes? Whether or not he's had any, has had any interventions. Um, What medications are they taking? And this means vitamins, things that are over the counter, supplements, and then whatever's prescribed. Uh, And then whatever's not prescribed that he's still taking. So basically thorough, thorough history needs to be done. Diet, 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 diet. Fluid intake, fluid intake, fluid intake, fluid intake. How much water is is he drinking? And then we can later screen for the things that are less common, like malabsorptive um, conditions, sort of like celiac or inflammatory bowel disease, whether or not somebody's had like gastric bypass. And then finally, if there's a family history of stones. Okay, so I think Mr. Stoney already mentioned he's super curious about whether or not he's going to have to cut back on his calcium intake, and I think our audience is as well. So can you tell us how you counsel patients regarding calcium intake? So the short answer is yes, he can keep drinking milk. And what is always surprising for people to hear is that a normal calcium diet is actually really important from a stone prevention perspective. And this is not just calcium oxalate stone, this is also calcium phosphate stones, but we see it more in calcium oxalate stones, and it's because in the gut, calcium binds oxalate, and that prevents too much absorption of oxalate. So if we have a low calcium diet, we're not, re- we're not able to bind that oxalate in the gut, and then we absorb too much of it. However, on the other end, if we have supplemental calcium, so we're taking too much of it, that does increase the risk of stone formation. 
Especially if you're taking it without eating it. So there's right. nothing for it to bind to. All right. So it sounds like dietary sources of calcium are okay, but you don't want to overdo it with the supplements, especially without food. You got it. All right. So the other element you mentioned that was super important, fluids, fluids, fluids. Mr. Stoney's asking you how much does he need to drink? He's read online that he needs to quote unquote flush out the stones. So how do you counsel him regarding fluid intake? So my general recommendation is that I want them to be peeing about two to three liters a day. So in order for them to pee two or three liters a day, they should be drinking two or three liters a day. But what American, what American knows what two to three liters is? Because they don't learn the metric system here. As someone who did not grow up in this country, I could say. You know, I'm embarrassed to say that every time I have to sit and pull out my calculator and... Me too! <laughs> in fact, I printed out a little thing, a table that sits in the docs room so that I know how many liters is ounces because I can never remember. Yeah, I don't spend my time remembering it, but I do get it out every time. And wait, do you have it off the top of your head, Sarah? No, I can never remember it. I'm going to go find it. I'm going to Google it for us right now. Ounces, two liters. So one liter is 33 ounces. Okay. So you want someone to be drinking at least a about 100 ounces, at least. 66 to 100 ounces. Yeah. Pretty much. So the, the importance is that if we aren't drinking enough, then our urine is going to be much more concentrated. And so that's going to increase our risk for precipitation of these crystals and stone formation. So we don't necessarily have to water, um, but what we really need to be absorbing is anything that's high in sugar. So, you know, even if they think this cranberry juice is supposed to help or, you know, they drink a lot of Kool-Aid, that's a no-no. That's going to increase our risk of stones. So lots of fluids, but they need to be low in glycemic index. I'm just curious how important the fluids are like if you have a patient come in with heart failure does that change how you would counsel them if they also have stones yeah carissa makes a good point which is she's because she's at the university right so she sees these people with really end-stage heart failure who have non-osmotic stimulus to adh because they have a low blood pressure and and so they have high ADH states. So they could, yes, they could make themselves hyponatremic if you, they were pushing a ton of water. That's sort of a unique situation, and that's not the majority of stone people. And that's a challenge. And that really is a challenge. So, yeah, we don't have the easiest answer for that. I mean, the good thing about this heart failure patient is that if they should not be consuming salt, and if they're not consuming a lot of salt, then they are going to decrease the amount of calcium, urinary calcium they produce. So that's going to help them. So hopefully you can get away with restricting the salt and then just having them skirt that amount of volume that is enough to help prevent stones, but not so much that they become hyponatremic. And that's where the urine analysis really helps long term. Yeah, that makes sense. So in general, it sounds like also, high sodium intake leads to decreased reabsorption of calcium and therefore higher urinary calcium excretion. Mm -hmm. Yes. And then this time, Sophie, aren't you going to get on my case for jumping the script? No, I think it's <laughs> flowing quite nicely. <laughs> the thing, I'm not as familiar with the script right now, so I can't be I was like, trying to make it like blend in, not be like... <laughs> 
oh, now we're going to talk about a spinach shake. Like, it just didn't seem like it was. I just want you to know that the script that I have is totally different than the script that you guys are working off of. So this should be interesting how this proceeds. I'm ad-libbing more than I normally do. I yeah, am too. It's good. Sorry. It's fine. No, it's great. It's fine. So Mr. Stoney is super happy. You just said that he can drink all the tea and water he wants. So he's happy about that. But when you get more into his dietary history, he does mention that he's making a spinach shake every morning because he's trying to lose some weight. Is this a problem? Well, Sophie's kind of mentioned this already, right? Which is that stones are formed because calcium has to bind something else. And so the stones that we're talking about, I think Mr. Stoney has calcium oxalate stones. So the positive calcium molecule binds the negative oxalate and they form the stone, which are unbelievably beautiful under microscope. And also on wallpaper, apparently. Yes, you also can get calcium oxalate stone wallpaper. But the problem is that, I mean, we have a, we, we have a ton of calcium in our body, right? But it's not going to bind to something if it doesn't have something else to bind to. So if you are having a spinach shake every day, you're going to be absorbing a lot of oxalate. And then that oxalate will be available and it can bind the calcium. And that's going to be a problem because then the calcium, the oxalate, they like each other because they're opposites and they attract and then they form a stone in your kidney. So you do want to have patients who are consuming a lot of oxalate to be careful about that and um, to minimize products that are high in oxalate, such as soy, rhubarb. Who eats rhubarb except for once in a while rhubarb pie? Nuts, uh, sweet potatoes, and chocolate. Now that's a little harder to get people to uh, stop, which is the chocolate. Yeah, I have to say on that list, chocolate is probably the only one that I would have a hard time giving up. I love sweet potatoes. Yeah, I run into, I love sweet potatoes too. That's a big time one. I also like chocolate, but my veterans, uh, they love nuts. Like I had this one guy who's like, well, I probably have a half gallon of nuts a day. And I was like, ding, 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 ding. Let's cut that down a little bit. That might make a bit of a difference. Not to mention that they're probably covered in sodium. That's true. I didn't bring that one up. (laughs) Mm, Good segue. Good segue. All right. So back to the patient. He tells us that he, quote unquote, has to have his red meat at least once a day and his salt shaker never leaves the side of the table. So how do you respond to this? So I think it's important for us to understand that animal protein intake is one of our big sources of acid. So it's a big acid load. And um, calcium oxalate stones precipitate in an acidic environment. So if you have a big acid load, you're actually going to be peeing out a lot more hydrogen ions. So that's one thing is it's going to acidify your urine. Plus, you're also going to have more uric acid that you're peeing out and potentially decreased uh, urinary excretion of citrate. And that, that also, a low urine citrate will increase your risk of stones. And then, of course, we already talked about the high-salt diet, but I think it's really important to bring this back around, is that if we have a high-salt diet, that means we're peeing out more salt, and we therefore are decreasing our reabsorption of calcium, and so we'll have a higher concentration of calcium in the urine as well. So now we're acidic, urinary environment, and that's where calcium oxalate stones like to precipitate. Increased uric acid, which sometimes has been known to, quote-unquote, be a nidus for calcium oxalate stones. And then we have our high salt diet, therefore we have high urinary salt, and therefore high calcium levels in the urine. And this is like a perfect storm for calcium oxalate stones. 
Okay, so I, I'm, I have to interrupt to ask Sophie a question. What do you mean by quote-unquote nidus? Good point. You know, I've actually heard this may or may not be de debunked, so you guys can maybe speak to this. But if you have some uric acid in there, it is thought that it can almost serve as a little seed where uh, calcium oxalate stones are really sweet uric acid, and they'll come and surround it. And so really, it's almost like the catalyst for more calcium oxalate stone formation. Yeah. I mean, I was taught that too by Fred Coe and John Asplund. So if that is no longer true, um, Fred Coe and John Asplund, who, John Asplund, who runs LithoLink, and Fred Coe, you can DM me. Or anyone, if, if, some, if that's not true, someone should DM me because I would be, I was taught that too. But the other thing you mentioned, Sophie, that is like, I think is the coolest thing is citrate. Mm -hmm. Because you know, if you take water and you put calcium and oxalate in it, it will crystallize faster than if you take urine and you put calcium oxalate in it. And one of the reasons is, is that urine has factors which prevent stone formation and citrate's one of them. So oh, having low urinary citrate is a risk factor for stone formation. So when you evaluate people with stones, they can have hypocitrusuria, and Litholink will tell you that. And Litholink, if you would like to sponsor our podcast, feel free, which I think Litholink is LabCorp nowadays, right? And so, yeah, so if you have low urinary citrate, it increases your risk of calcium oxalate stones. Sarah, I think that's a good segue to ask if other than the ones we've already mentioned, are there any other dietary risk factors to be aware of in the setting of stones? Sophie already mentioned that sucrose intake is associated with increased urinary calcium excretion. It's also interesting that just from an epidemiological standpoint, kidney stones, we didn't mention this earlier, but kidney stones are really a disease of the affluent industrialized world. So it increases where obesity is a bigger problem. So Europe and North America, and so not surprisingly, a sugary drink such as Coca-Cola is not the best thing for either obesity or, or stones. Other things that can affect your stone formation is potassium. So higher potassium intake can actually decrease the calcium excretion and increases your urinary citrate back to the citrate thing, and it protects against um, stones. And then the thing that we just see all the time is people who are on vitamin C, like they take it because... It's going to keep them from getting COVID or they take it because they're going to, it's going to keep them from getting sick. But vitamin C metabol is metabolized to oxalate and then it can bind calcium. And so it increases your uh, stones. Yeah. Vitamin C, that is the one as a fellow that I remember that more than most of my cases. It was a stone patient. I couldn't figure out what was going on. And I sent it to the nutritionist and the nutritionist came back. Well, she's like having one of those Hall's bags of um, vitamin C a day. Um, wow. You know, those vitamin C tasty hauls, like I actually love them. You know, the, they have all different flavors, but one a day or one bag a day. And that was, uh, that was it. And once she stopped that reluctantly, it was less of an issue. I really wish, um, I hope there's some urologists listening to this because I think it'd be great if they could stop the vitamin C because sometimes you're, there are a lot of patients who urologists see before they see us, or they see the urologist and then never see us. And I see a lot of people who've been seeing a urologist for a long time and keep taking their vitamin C, and they never got stopped. And hopefully that'll help the world of internists and hospitalists as well, because 
I feel like so often we kind of skip over the herbs and supplements section of the meds, but this is a clinical scenario where I think that's super helpful and where we can make a meaningful impact. Future podcast supplements. So let's wrap up the talk on diet and fluids and let's move on. Sarah, you already kind of mentioned some of the other risk factors being obesity, type 2 diabetes, the metabolic syndrome, any other things that we need to think about when assessing a patient with kidney stones in terms of the history? Age, race, are they obese or not? Do they have underlying type 2 diabetes? What is their family history? We know that there is a twofold greater risk of stones if there's a family history of stones or if they have something, a rare autosomal recessive disorder like primary hyperoxaluria. Past the history elements, moving on to the fun stuff, what lab workup should we order for Mr. Stoney? We love labs in nephrology. So, um, well, you obviously, you want to rule out that the patient has hypercalcemia, right? So presumably if they have calcium stones, they probably have high urinary calcium, but the question becomes, do they have high urinary calcium because they're just unlucky and genetically they have higher urinary calcium, or do they have high urinary calcium because the, the amount of calcium being filtered at the glomerulus is, is very high. So you want to check a, a serum calcium and a phosphorus. Obviously, if the calcium is high and the phosphorus is low, that would make you think of hyperparathyroidism. So you also want to check a PTH or it would make you think of any disease that mimics hyperparathyroidism like PTHRP. So then we also just check all electrolytes because we talked about how potassium and acidosis can contribute to it. A serum uric acid is good. And then a vitamin D. I mean, I check a vitamin D. It's not like the most important thing I always check. I mean, some patients with sarcoid, your vitamin D will look low and then like you'll give them vitamin D and they're shunting it all into 125 vitamin D. So I usually check 125 and 25 vitamin D. So, um, and then what you, we typically do is we do a 24 hour urine collection for a bunch of things, but it allows us to measure urine volume, urine calcium, urine oxalate, urine citrate, urine uric acid, sodium, potassium. And that can really help you guide the patient in finding the specific contributions to their stone formation. So for example, one patient might have really low urinary citrate and putting them on potassium citrate is going to help with that. Or somebody else might be eating gazillions of nuts and salt and has you know really high urinary sodium. And what they need to do is just restrict their sodium. So um, that allows you really to tailor your therapy to what they're doing. You also catch when they're only drinking 0.7 liters a day, like my prior nanny for my children, who was having kidney stones all the time, who only drank like 0.7 liters a day. <laughs> and then if you're lucky, you can actually get the stone composition analysis. Like somebody's actually been able to collect the stone that they've peed out, and that can also be helpful. Like in Mr. Stoning. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's always such a win when they come in with their stone. It's a very exciting moment. It is exciting, but you still need that 24-hour collection because that just is a snapshot. You know that you've got that type of stone, but then you need to figure out what you need to do about it. And that's why you get the 24-hour collection and it really helps guide your treatment. Yeah. And I think that was the learning point for me. I thought once you capture one of their stones, you're done. So still have to do the 24-hour urine collection. 
So what are some disease processes that can lead to secondary calcium oxalate stones and will likely be ruled out by the lab workup? So some things that we start to think of, especially, I mean, it's, once again, it's dependent on a lot of things, but a renal tubular acidosis is one thing to consider. Hyperparathyroidism, which is what Sarah discussed, any reason to cause somebody to have a high serum calcium and therefore filter more calcium at the glomerulus. So sarcoidosis can do this. Malabsorptive disorders, like I mentioned previously, what happens there is that you get, if you're not able to absorb the fats that you're eating, they stay in the gut. And when that happens, they actually, those fats bind the calcium and it leaves free oxalate to be absorbed. And then it's that oxalate that then comes in and can form calcium oxalate stones and crystals in the urine. So any, like I said, malabsorptive disorders, inflammatory bowel disease, history of gastric bypass. Yeah. And then just to clarify, like distal RTA, typically that causes calcium phosphate stones more than calcium oxalate stones. So Mr. Stoney's labs come back. There is no concern for a secondary cause of hypercalciuria. Just to summarize, what are going to be the final recommendations that we give Mr. Stoney? We want him to make sure that he drinks at least two liters a day of fluid. And two liters is how many ounces again? 66. (laughs) And we want them to, we want him, Mr. Stoney, to reduce his sodium intake to less than 2.5 grams a day to minimize animal protein. It's fine for him to have a normal dietary intake of calcium but to try to avoid supplements of calcium or vitamin C. And if he can, you hate to give someone like 20 recommendations the first time. So the first time I see them, I tell them low sodium, drink two liters and minimize protein. If they ask about calcium, I then tell them it's fine to eat calcium. Just don't take a supplement. And then if they're on vitamin C, I'll take them off of it. I usually don't go on to talk about oxalate, to be honest, until I see their 24-hour urine because I feel like they get overwhelmed or I, and and on their 24-hour urine, I can see is oxalate a big factor. And I can also see is protein a big factor. And then you can counsel them more um, specifically to those things. I don't know. What do you do, Sophie? Number one, I try not to make any changes or do any counseling until I get my 24-hour collection because I want it to be representative of what they've been doing, not what I've told them to do. And so oftentimes I'll wait on some of my counseling until I have that information. If it's something that I'm not, somebody that I'm not entirely sure they're going to do the 24-hour collection or that I will ever see again, I'll be more inclined to give them some more information. And sometimes it's nice because we have a nutritionist who's really good at the VA and somebody who I can just easily send to send them to, uh, to do some of that. But I typically will wait until I have more information specifically with like the oxalate rich foods. Cause if it's not high in their urine, I'm not worried about it. Yeah. And they can get really overwhelmed. So, you know, and you want them to focus on, you know, pretty much anyone with a stone should drink more water and limit salt. You could be pretty safe with that. And then tailor additional counseling after that. Right. And and a lot of these people are just predisposed, but if you do not have their urine properly diluted, any of our other changes or recommendations isn't going to make a big difference unless they're drinking enough water. Yes, that's right. 
And that's going to be a lifelong recommendation, right? Yeah, that doesn't change. So other than lifestyle and diet modifications, is there anything else we use to prevent recurrence of calcium oxalate stones? Oftentimes, my first things that I'll do is I'll, I'll reach for potassium citrate. Number one, it's a natural inhibitor of calcium stone formation. It also does help alkalinize the urine uh, because citrate is metabolized to three bicarbonate. So that's, those are sort of the multifactorial reasons why we try and give somebody citrate. Now, if there's somebody who has high baseline serum potassium, maybe I'll recommend that they take the, the lemon-flavored crystal light or even recommend doing lemon juice and water. Um, and then the other thing, after I try the potassium citrate, su- suppose they have like a high urinary calcium, I'll be more inclined to start them on thiazide diuretics as well. And thiazide diuretics, we know, are calcium sparing. So we're actually reabsorbing calcium from the urine, so it lowers the urinary calcium. And do you, is that like your third line treatment? Do you start with diet and lifestyle modifications? If they have another stone, add potassium citrate and a thiazide. Like how does that fit into your algorithm? So it's always dietary and lifestyle modifications uh, because oftentimes urinary calcium will come down just by changing somebody's sodium intake. But as you know, it's really challenging for many people to alter what their sodium intake is just based on what their living situation is. So you can do that, but in the grand scheme of things, sometimes you end up doing a thiazide diuretic. But yes, it's oftentimes third agent. And some of these patients just have hypercalciuria. Like they're just genetically predisposed to have high urinary calciums, which you'll see on your 24-hour urine. And they do great with a little chlorothaladone. Oftentimes what I'll do is I'll get that 24-hour collection and then I'll make all of these recommendations and then I'll get a repeat collection in three to six months depending on when I can get them back in and see how things have changed and correlate it to what changes they say they've made and then if we still are seeing high urinary calcium that's a good time to start the thiazide diuretic. Yeah that's what I do too. Any other points before we kind of summarize what we've discussed so far? I don't think so. Just remember that also uh, urologists, there are some really good urologists that can also do this. However, you will sometimes see that not all, but some urologists will just broadly place patients on potassium citrate. And that's not always indicated because there are other stones out there. And so in the absence of having a 24-hour collection and knowing what the composition of the urine is, or in the absence of having a stone analysis, that's kind of flying blind, and it's, it's not treating the patient based on what all of that is. So if you see that somebody's on potassium citrate, they're still having problems with stones, it's not a bad idea to go ahead and get your own 24-hour collection or send them to another urologist or another nephrologist to get that workup. Yeah, and if they ha- don't have hypocitrusuria and you're just pushing up their urinary citrate, you could actually increase their risk of other forms of stones like calcium phosphorus. Blindly starting potassium citrate, probably not a good idea. All right. So just to summarize some take-home points, calcium oxalate stones are the most common stone composition that we see, roughly about 75 to 80% of all stones. Diet and fluid intake are crucial, so we got to make sure we include that in our HPI and specifically counsel patients on 
the fact that calcium in the diet is okay, fluids, 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 and make sure you ask about vitamin C and other supplements. The 24-hour urine collection is super important to figure out best next steps in terms of lifestyle modifications and potential uh, medical therapies later on. And then make sure you rule out those secondary causes with a thorough lab and urinary workup. That sounds great. All right. Well, I think that wraps it up tonight. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you. Thank you, Parisa, for this fantastic script and for joining the team. We're so happy to have you on board. Uh, Stay tuned for our upcoming podcast on a topic, TBD, but we're hoping to get it out within the next month. Fingers crossed that this new energy injected to the Kidney Essentials podcast is going to also get our bottoms going and getting this more (laughs) frequent again. If there are any specific topics that you do want to hear about, feel free to message us on on Twitter. And please, 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 please rate us. Give us some feedback. We want to hear what you guys think. And we are here to improve and to make things better. And we're here for you all. How about our legal disclaimer? Okay, legal disclaimer. This podcast is for educational purposes only. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host. This podcast should not be used as medical advice or treatment for specific.